This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. This is Ashish Ganesh. He's the CEO of BankU, and I'm really thrilled to have Ashish on here today. I learned about the company through Stanford Social Innovation Review. And Ashish has a really amazing story that I'd love for him to share with everyone about how he got Thank You started and what was really the passion and desire behind the company. So I'll hand it over to you, Ashish, to share your story with everyone. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, Tracy. I really feel uh, blessed to be here. Um, So my name is Ashish, as Tracy said, and uh, I actually um, sold my last startup in 2012 and uh, spent two years as a volunteer CEO for USAID, which is a not-for-profit, as you all know, uh, and spent uh, time in the DRC in Congo. And I was working as a volunteer in this nonprofit sector, um, specifically around gender equality and agriculture practices. And one of the things that um, you know, I was feeling proud about, but then turned out that I was going down the wrong track, was you know, we had this help lens or the pity lens where we were working with these women farmers, we were enabling access to markets and things like that. And, you know, for a couple of years of that volunteer not-profit work, I was feeling pretty happy about, you know, having made the switch from capitalism to not-for-profit. But at the end of 2014, um, I hit a a big wall because one of the uh, mama farmers wanted to open a bank account. And I Mm. thought that was amazing, you know, because women are smarter than men. We already know that. And well, yes. And so she, um, you know, wanted um, to open a bank account so she could get better access to credit, better access to inputs and input financing. You know how it is in Congo, right? It's a tough place. Uh, but the local bank refused uh, to let her open a bank account. And, and what was interesting about that incident was that um, even though she had harvest, even though she had been working for, you know, solid 30, 40 years in extremely harsh conflict conditions, um, she actually didn't exist. And yet, um, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, here I was nobody in Congo, right? I mean, I wouldn't survive a single day on my own. Uh, but the local bank said that, uh, you know, they couldn't bank her because of various reasons, which did not make sense to me, which is, you know, gender. Uh, they, they said she didn't have papers. They said that she couldn't prove her harvest. But the guy said to me that he couldn't bank her, but he looked at me and said, I can bank you. Um, and that, that word being Q kind of bothered me a lot because there was kind of a fundamental flaw that hit me really hard. Uh, that was that people who work so hard uh, every day in global supply chains, right? So farmers or garment workers or anybody, right? In that last mile, first mile, um, work hard, but don't exist. Produce the raw materials and finished goods, but cannot prove their participation in that um, supply chain. So I decided that I needed to do something about it. And so I left the not-for-profit sector and spent a year looking at the problem. 
And the problem came out to be easy to define, which was if you look at global supply chains, right? If you look at coffee, cacao, cobalt for your cell phone battery, whatever, there's always a first mile or last mile. And most often, the last mile could be the farmers or first mile, the recyclers who are picking up the bottles uh, on the streets um, are actually the ones who are making the supply chain work. Yet, that mother or that recycler cannot prove his or her existence in that supply chain because they have no proof that they participated in that transaction. So there's so no transaction detail in terms of they're providing the raw materials that go into a finished good or a finished product, but there's no proof that they existed and actually provided that supply of something. Exactly. And they don't have any, it sounds like, credit history, so to speak, um, you know, in terms of listeners trying to relate or better understand the situation. Yes. And actually, if you unpack it further, right, I mean, I came to the United States in 1994. But what's interesting is at the end of that first month, right, in 1994, I was able to get a bank account because I had, uh, you know, my work history for a month. I had my electricity bill, my phone bill, and I was able to put that together, present it to a bank in Boston, and I got a bank account, right? Yet 20 years forward in 2014, here's a mother who is growing your coffee and cacao or her children are working in a cobalt mine that shows up in your iPhone or your Samsung phone, right? But she cannot prove that history, the flaw, right? And for, for me, identity is not the problem we're trying to solve. You know, a lot of people talk about identity, identity. But at the end of the day, if you look at refugees, they have four UN identity cards. If you look at people who live in poverty, they have identity cards from Gates or Grameen or not-for-profit. But for me, identity should be your economic identity. Is your, what you do or what you've done then proves your existence in the supply chain, right? And that's the flaw is kind of when I realized that I needed to, you know, go back into this for-profit setting and started being Q because the idea was if I can get global brands like ABN Bev, you know, who's a client of ours, to see that their supply chain has invisible farmers and they already knew that, then we can potentially leverage technology to not only fulfill the brand's promise of sustainability, but that mother now has history that she is a farmer and nobody can take that away. So that was kind of the- <laughs> Like what are also these private sector companies? How are they contributing or improving the social sector? I think is also important to them as you noted with the exactly. brands, right? So yes. how are um, individuals getting paid before you came along? Like would they just get paid cash for whatever product they provided or how, what were they doing before? Yes. In fact, we have many, many, many cases, uh, you know, where in, in every, before we got there, typically what you'll find is that there's pure cash. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there are armored trucks from the brands that bring to disperse the cash. So it's kind of a dangerous situation. Security becomes an issue then too. Exactly. And then uh, for women farmers, it becomes even more riskier. So like in Zambia, Uganda, everywhere we've been, we found that cash is actually a dual problem. One is you have cash moving back and forth. And second, it puts the women farmers or the women workers um, at risk. And then the third problem is that it, because it's all happening cash, that farmer or that recycler, right, depending on which side of the supply chain you're in, has never been able to pull together a copy. In fact, there's a great story, and this is public information, where one of the farmers, she lost 
the paper receipt that was given to her because they did not have enough cash. She came back three days later, but it was raining and the receipt disintegrated. And so she could not recover her cash, right? And so that's before banking. Now with BankQ, the way software works is that that mother does not need to have a smartphone. Just via SMS and through the BankQ blockchain, she gets a confirmation of the uh, quantity, the quality, the payout, and any incentive that is related to quality. And that's a permanent record. And she now has the ownership of her data. That's one of the things that I always tell people, we at BenQ, we don't own data. We're kind of the anti-Facebook because for us, us owning the data is no different from every other software company that owns poor people's data. Whereas in the BenQ network, and you can talk to our clients like ABNBEP, Japan Tobacco, everybody, they will also confirm that the farmer owns their data. Because at the end of the day, if the farmer cannot own, access, monetize, and permission their data, then you've really not created an equal system. So that's kind of how we've thought about the solution. So then how do they access that information if they don't have a mobile phone? Yeah, so the the way it works is that um, if they don't have a smartphone, um, they just need to have an SMS phone, you know, the feature phones. And what we found, 90% or more uh, in, in Africa, Latin America, East Asia, they may not have a smartphone, but they have an SMS phone. And we register, we in the sense when we do the rollouts, right, the farmers get registered using their SIM card, which is that SMS phone, and a national ID card because we want to meet the local rules and local laws. That SMS phone now becomes their passport. If you lost it in the field, you come to the authorized agent, they can look you up in your ID, and now they'll replace the phone number with the new SIM card phone number. Because the value is that you, we are trying to move towards a cashless and a paperless. In fact, one of the recent things because of COVID, what we found is, and I'm gonna jump a little bit at, last year we started uh, getting rid of cash completely. Like in Zambia and Uganda, now directly mobile money through the telco provider. So it's not cryptocurrency. This is you know, MTN and Airtel. So what happens is when the mother say gives the 40 kilos of barley, she gets an SMS message saying 40 kilos of barley, X amount of moisture, here's the payout. She gets to choose if she wants to cash out or get a direct deposit on her SMS phone. Smart. mobile money. Okay. Smart. And now because of COVID, this has become a blessing. Um, in fact, there was a press release a couple of weeks ago from the Zambian breweries guys, uh, our uh, ABI colleagues in uh, uh, Zambia, where because of the mobile money integration on BenQ, farmers are getting paid for their harvest during COVID and not have to touch cash. In other countries, the increase of using a mobile function was actually greater than in most um, you know, developed countries Absolutely. in terms of access and stuff. And that was actually one of those things that was quite interesting is we're actually behind the times in the U.S. compared to other countries yes. because our adoption was a lot slower. And what you're describing here is they're using technology that we could actually benefit from by not having to use cash or, you know, credit card or any other form that may be behind in terms of security function. Absolutely. In fact, and it has an ecosystem impact, right? Which, which by the way, I have learned, you know, I learn every day from these farmers and recyclers. One of the interesting uh, learnings that I had last year is that while, you know, we were feeling really good about the mobile money payments, what we didn't realize is that, especially the women farmers, 
because they were getting the direct deposit on the phone, they could literally in five seconds turn around, put in a code and pay for their child's school fees. Because the school in Mansa does accept mobile money. So in, a, in an interesting way, right, these women were so brilliant that they figured out, hey, if I'm getting incoming cash for my harvest, I don't have to cash out and be afraid of somebody stealing it. I'm just going to go pay for the school fees right away. So it's, it's kind almost of like an advanced Venmo here. <laughs> like our concept of Venmo is you could see people pay each other, right, using their exactly. checking account. But in this case, they're using the, it, it sounds like the SMS and their, is it the SIM card in the phone? It's, yeah, it's just a standard SMS phone, right, which is, has a SIM card and does not, it's a simple, you know, it's like a $5 or less phone, which just does, you can call and you can send text messages. But you also get your mobile money, which is through MTN and Airtel, the telcos in Africa. Interesting. So what happens if someone steals your phone, though? Is there... Uh -huh. If somebody steals your phone, they cannot cash out because only you know your PIN on the phone. So unless I'm holding a gun to your head, your money is safe. And if you reported your phone was stolen, then they just shut down the phone service and they transfer to another device. You got it. So it's almost, Smart. in fact, actually in Africa now and with a lot of the mobile phone companies, they offer an interest-bearing account. So banks are starting to realize that the telcos are coming after the banking business. Think about it, right? If I'm that mama and I have 400 kwacha on my phone and you're going to give me interest, I would leave 200 so I can get interest on it. Yeah, right? and it allows them to save and also understand the basic principles of finance in terms Bingo. of personal, you know, personal finance and teaching them how to do that. And then it, exactly. to the extent that they want to get additional capital or scale their business, right? They now yes. have a history or a transaction record Bingo. where they can now say, wait a minute, I do have a transaction history. I do have a, you know, verifiable business and yes. that you're wondering about and here's all my paperwork or here's the transaction flows. In fact, I have two concrete examples of that. Um, in, in Uganda, because of that history, now the farmers can sit down with micro crop insurance because they can show, hey, for the last 18 months, this is my harvest data. This is the number of kilos I've grown. Here's the quality. And last year, we also introduced input financing. So we're not the bank. We don't touch the money. But a farmer now, because of they have history, can get seed inputs, fertilizers on credit. And because it's blockchain, it opens a smart contract that then settles when you bring to sell your harvest. So kind of responsible financing that says, hey, if you are producing say 400 kilos and you get better seeds, you can go to 600 kilos, but you don't have the money for good seed inputs, fine. You can take it on credit, nothing is free in the world. And then when you come to sell those 600 kilos because you've had a good harvest, now I can deduct. So you've kind of created this ecosystem of farming inputs and microcrop insurance that is now the whole package. It's amazing. So are banks coming to work with you as well? Because obviously you're helping to give them more access to potential customers, right? That they can yes. le lend credit to or have a relationship with. So are you working with some of the banks in these countries too? Yes, actually in Uganda, the local banks, the Stanbig Bank uh, actually joins the farmers on farmer days. Because for them, um, you know, they, they look at the farmer's SMS, but they also have the ABN Bev uh, 
you know, agronomist, right? And because it's blockchain, the data is completely transparent. It's secured and private, but it's transparent. So they can validate, say, hey, if I'm telling you I'm a sheesh farmer in Kupnarkat and I grew 400 kilos, you don't have to trust me. You're going to be able to see that same copy of the 400 kilos on the brewery side. And that's an advantage because then for banks, it reduces the cost of customer acquisition dramatically. Mm -hmm. exactly. right? Because the more I know about you, your risk profile goes down, I can bank you. Mm -hmm. So how did you start with your first customer for bank you? Oh, so, you know, the, the, the first customer was actually in 2016 when we started the company and it was, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't a paying customer. You know, this is us basically testing um, the software and making sure that, Hey, you know, we've come up with this crazy idea to reduce extreme poverty using a for-profit lens. Um, so our actually initial testing or customer were refugees, believe it or not. And one of my co-founders of so the three of us, my, one of my co-founders was himself a refugee and he spent three and a half years as a Somali refugee in the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. Wow. And over the years, you know, we've become friends and he told me one of the biggest problems that he had run into was there were a lot of things that happened to him in the refugee camp, uh -huh. but at no given time was he able to pull that information together. So the very first customers are testing and the beta we did was in the refugee camps um, and with the refugees because what they appreciated was the fact that finally they had a way to prove everything that was happening to them. So that's kind of how we basically got a start. And that's kind of when we realized that the problem of a lack of an economic passport, right? That's what I call <laughs> it, exists not only for refugees, but it exists for farmers, it exists for workers. It, now, in fact, in recycling, you know, I was in Colombia in March where we rolled out with Bavaria for returnables of bottles. And a lot of the waste pickers or recyclers on the streets are good men and women who work extremely hard so they can feed their kids at night. Oh, exactly. But there is no way to prove that they have been selling, you know, 400 kilos of bottles each year, right? And that's kind of where, you know, if you look kind of 2016 to where we got to start back in 2016 with a customer that says, I want to be able to prove my transactions. And we have stayed true to that even today. So is that who you approach first or do you approach the larger companies that help incorporate this into their supply chain like AB, Anheuser-Busch or... Japan tobacco, like who do you approach first or how do you go about implementing, for instance, yes. everything? So now, you know, that we have, um, you know, kind of our model is up and running. We're live in 40 countries. You know, we have, um, uh, you know, we're not a startup anymore. You know, our focus primarily now is uh, going and sitting down and having conversations with brands. They don't have to be massive brands like ABNB, but brands and companies who are sourcing from the last mile or distributing into the first mile. So, mm. you know, because for us, our business model is we don't charge the farmer, we don't charge the recycler, we don't charge the last mile, first mile. We charge the brand or the company. And our pitch to them is very simple that says, look, if you have a supply chain on the sourcing or distribution side, there's a good chance that there are people in poverty in that supply chain that are working for you every day may not be working for you directly, but they may be working through a broker or a middleman or aggregator. So what has happened is that has actually really changed the thinking of the CEOs and, and the sustainability officers we work with because they kind of realize that, hey, if I'm 
engaging with BenQ software and I buy BenQ software, uh, I can make a big social impact, but at the same time, I can make a big economic uh, push, right? Because if you look at a supply chain that's transparent, you're going to save money in sourcing because you're going to know who you your farmer is. You can see exactly is. where you can save, save the money versus guessing where you think the money can Exactly, be right? So, so my pitch to them is said, look, you know, if you, social impact is, is a given, right? That's a t- mm-hmm. table stakes. But if you're trying to save money in your supply chain, or you want to prove to your customers that if you're drinking a cup of coffee and you can tell who the mother farmer is, there's a good chance your customer is going to want to buy your product more than a competitor's product. Or and you, you can prove research, it, like you said, like for it actually is coming from a sustainable individual exactly. overseas. It's not just a story that I'm telling for branding purposes or reputation. I can actually prove it to you. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and for me, the, the way I look at it is you also look at, you know, like returnables. I'm learning uh, every day around recycling. One of the interesting things about glass, right? Mm-hmm. If you're ba- bringing in bottles back into returnables, it's going to save you 30%, right? So if you are basically, you know, pushing for a recycling supply chain that's traceable and transparent, like, you know, Bavaria in Colombia, you know, this year will basically have 2 million bottles come back into the supply chain. So that's a cost savings, but it's also a massive environmental impact uh, in terms of carbon footprint, conservation, and things like that. So it's kind of a, you know, that's why we keep saying for profit, for purpose. Well, and the other piece that you've highlighted is you're helping to create equality right and you're also focusing on poverty but really giving people the livelihood and the means to sustain themselves versus a reliance on others to help do that so to speak right so when people talk about sustainability it also is related to personal sustainability and the pride and the confidence that people get from being able to sustain themselves like it's often heard that you know as human beings no one really wants to rely on another person for that sustenance. And there is a, you know, our emotional well-being is tied to that too. And you're giving people a livelihood and you're giving people the means so that they can have mental, emotional, and physical well-being all together. And I think that's Absolutely. phenomenal. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a pride thing, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I've interacted, like I was, uh, when we were starting to do the rollout in Colombia, I interacted with this young mother who has a six-year-old daughter and, you know, they live in a dangerous neighborhood and she's been selling um, recycling material, right? But no bank is willing to give her a loan because they say, well, you cannot prove that you've been selling, uh, you know, and so now she can, right? Because she's like, hey, look me up, right? You don't have to treat me as, as, as a streetway speaker. I'm a businesswoman and I can show you my data. And if you don't believe me, look at my data on the side of the beer company, right? So it's, it's kind of this, this, you know, I call it the democratization of data, right? Because, you know, I, this is just my opinion, right? And you can edit me out on this, but I think we live in a data dictatorship. Yeah. And, and, and if we're really going to make a difference in that, you know, last mile, first mile, you know, the 2 billion people who live in extreme poverty now more than ever because of COVID, more people have gone into poverty. You have to democratize data in a way that they can own their own destiny, right? It's, it's, you know, the people say like, give a man a fish, right? Then teach a man a fish. I actually think that there's a third element, which should be connect their extra fish to a supply chain. Well, I think (laughs) democratizing data even extends, I mean, it's everywhere. We have to get in that mindset of being able to do that. And even more so what you're highlighting is 
wouldn't it be beautiful if what you're doing overseas, we could do it here in the U.S.? Oh, right? I and would solve love to. A lot of um, social issues here, whether or not it's homelessness or food insecurity or you know individuals that are seeking a higher wage, even here in the U.S. How do you do that, right? And how do you in involve similar practices that the rest of the world is incorporating, even here in our own country, right? In fact, actually in the U.S., right, there are so many marginalized communities that are never given the ability to prove their work history. It's that simple, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be homeless, right? And right. just if you're able to show that history, your interest rate's going to go down, right? I mean, it's like the classic, right? The less I know, the higher I'm going to charge you, right? And so, no, absolute applicability. And, you know, we've we have tried, I think what we struggle in, in the US is, you know, some of the bureaucracies and the institutions are so deeply rooted that this idea of having that end person being in charge of their data is so foreign to us. Whereas, you know, in fact, you know, we, we did this rollout with the Islamic Development Bank in the last 12 weeks over COVID and we're live in, you know, 25 countries with them. And one of the most interesting things we're seeing is that, you know, countries like Senegal and Mali and Mauritania they are embracing this technology because they believe that the transparency and traceability creates equality. And I wish we could do that here. We need to. And I think there's got to be a revolution around that because it's understanding that even here in the U.S., like the divide between rich and poor or just the divide in general is huge. And we're not acknowledging it maybe because we just don't take the time on a day-to-day -day basis to do such. But it's acknowledging that we're no different than other countries in the sense that we need to apply and be willing and open to and maybe less prideful or less full of ourselves to really embrace that, right? And I think what's interesting is you bring up a lot of um, females and single moms that are working overseas, right? And it's also understanding that there's a huge number of females in other countries it's not just a modern movement, so to speak. It's just females in general that are providing a livelihood for the next generation, for their kids, for their families. Um, it's really interesting to see the data around that because I know we did a study with a partner in Benin, Africa, and the majority of individuals that are working in the fields and working in general was actually more women to men, almost like a two-to-one ratio. And it was surprising to see that because more often than not, we thought that it would be men that were mostly doing the work. Um, and so that's and really you know, they, The women farmers or women recyclers uh, tend to have a higher level of fiscal responsibility because they're looking at the, you know, that school fees example, right? I mean, with, you know, again, you know, making fun of myself as a man, I would have never thought of paying for school fees. Mm -hmm. Whereas that mother thought of paying for school fees in five seconds, right? I mean, that kind of, shows you, you know, a high level of intellectual capacity there. So that's why I think you're also addressing inequality, right? Gender oh, inequality. Cool. And just um, aside from, you know, the other topics that we talked about. And curious, um, Ashish, if you can describe for listeners, like what the thought process was behind kind of starting out as a nonprofit, because I noticed that Bank You had received a I guess, grant from Rockefeller initially, right? And the yes. transition that you went through to become a for-profit. Yeah, you know, so when we started the company, right, we knew we wanted to build a software company, right? We, we knew we wanted to engage in this extreme poverty uh, challenge that not a lot of people had taken. So, you know, we were kind of in that formative few months where when we got the, 
the grant, it was, it was great, right? Because we needed that capital infusion. But very quickly, we kind of realized that, um, you know, our, our DNA, right? You know, we're geeks, right? Our DNA <laughs> is software, right? You know, we're my geeks last the data over here. Yeah, you, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, what was interesting is that, um, you know, for us, if we, if we had gone down a pure not-for-profit lens, right? then we would always have been bucketed in a CSR bucket or an NGO bucket, right? And how do you make meaningful change uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, extreme poverty? Because the connection of extreme poverty and global supply chains is something that nobody had really looked at, right? A lot of people do program engagement at the poverty level or the gender inequality level. That's kind of when we realized that, Hey, if we anchor in supply chain, it'll be harder initially, but once we hit traction, right, we'll be able to show that sustainability should be your business, right? Sustain, and this is, you know, Avian Web says it best, right? Sustainability is their business. They don't say, hey, we're going to work with poor farmers and then we're going to brew beer, right? For them, they say, no barley, no beer, right? Which means they're not separating the two. So that's kind of when we very quickly realized that, you know, we sell software, we sell software for a profit, and the impact is on the supply chain, and the supply chain consists of people in poverty. And we're treating them as equally as we would a brand. Mm -hmm. So for me, a farmer has the same weight as the CEO of ABN Web. No difference. They're equal right. to me 100%. That's kind of how we then said, you know, this is the way to go. That's, but we never lost the anchor in purpose, right? When we hire, when we engage, when I speak, I say, look, we're for profit, but for purpose. That will never go away. And I think what's amazing, though, is that you're incorporating this interplay, too, that as the world is shifting, and it has been for a while, for profit and nonprofit are not as distinct or not as separate as I think a lot of people perceive it to be. But there's a lot more that the two parties can do together. And, exactly. you know, more and more, um, as time goes on, a lot of nonprofits are adopting a lot more for-profit principles in terms of what are ways that I can make money and rely on that sustaining income to support myself as an organization versus a reliance on grants. And especially as capital resources become more finite and foundations, I think, are starting to acknowledge that too. How can I help to accelerate that or how can I help contribute to that sustainability? So I think what's great is that you took this grant and essentially made itself sustainable such that Rockefeller can stand here and say, I helped contribute to you. Guys. Oh, totally. And we love Thank them, right? Happen, I mean, right? They were the first ones, you know, you know, when we were, you know, three, four months old. And, you know, I, I'd also say that we need all, right? If when you go to a restaurant, right, you can't just have the chef or the waiters, right? You need all. That's why I think we need a good mix of for-profit, not-for-profit foundations, government, right? I mean, I'm just learning with this COVID example, right? You know, we are rolling out for one of the largest banks in the world, right? Islamic Development Bank. And we're working with them. We're working with ministries of finance. We're working with UN agencies. And we've come to realize that it's kind of like a four-piece puzzle that's come together. And we're bringing in food, medicine supplies into countries that are extremely hard to get to. So I think you know, there's not one answer. I believe now, I truly believe that we need all parts, um, but we want to kind of make sure we're integrated. Well, and I usually refer to it as an interdisciplinary approach. Like you yes. need all parties working together. Each has its own strengths 
and their complementary strengths or network or resources, but all of them working together is really critical in order to solve the problem, right? Yes. Or to solve what needs to be solved rather than each party working separately from one another, kind of like the head and the arms aren't working together. That's not very useful if we want yes. to move in the same direction. Right. No, I mean, a good example is Japan Tobacco, right? I mean, you know, they, uh, you know, we started working with them back in 2018 to solve the child labor issue. And, you know, we work with them as a for-profit software company. They're a for-profit tobacco company. They engage with local NGOs um, to, uh, you know, basically create awareness around anti-child labor and things like that, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a combination. You know, I'm not an expert on anti-child labor. I don't have the first clue about you know, detail that's needed. I'm a software company, but my software in concert with JTI, which are two you know, for-profit companies engaging with local communities, we bring it together. So how has COVID-19 affected you? Has it only accelerated the growth of BankU right now in an environment like today? Or how would you describe the changes that are going on right now for yourself as you look to the future and how individuals can support you? So actually, it, it has accelerated. You know, uh, we, we were live in 16 countries uh, on, on March 15th, and now we're live in 40 countries. Um, oh. So it has uh, really accelerated our growth um, quite a bit. Um, you know, it's also kind of opened up our eyes to um, taking a platform approach, uh, which is one thing that, um, you know, that if you look at my schedule the last uh, 12 weeks, it's been 22-hour shifts, and it's been worth it because... Um, one of the most interesting experiences that we had and I personally had that, you know, we had a really good software company that was working in many countries, many use cases. And very quickly, we had to, I wouldn't say pivot, but we had to put our thinking caps on and said, hey, the problem that COVID is going to run into is a supply chain problem, right? It, at the end of the Slowing day. Slowing down or like it's not working as well as it should be. Exactly. The gloves need to get to the clinics. The masks need to get to the clinics. And in the U.S., it might be easier. But if you're a remote clinic in Senegal, right, their life is equally important as a life in Austin, Texas, right? Agreed. And in their case, it's more than just COVID. It's food security, right? I mean, you know, I mean, again, this is me just saying humbly, right? We've taken COVID seriously and we should. But we should also think about the impact on the food supply chains that have completely blown up because of the lockdowns, right? So if you're living in a slum with 15 other people, you can't self-quarantine. And you're not going to get rice or oil or grain, right? So one thing we've learned in the last 12 weeks or so is, you know, we were able to very quickly morph our software and not only leverage all the work we were doing with sustainability and supply chain traceability and stuff like that, but we were also able to very quickly then, without leaving our homes, connect to the ministries of health, ministries of finance, and NGOs, you know, like the UN agencies through Islamic Development Bank, into countries, you know, as far as, you know, Mali and Mauritania and Koromos, where they log on, they place the order for, uh, you know, what sort of supplies they're going to need. There's a transparent supply chain. So, you know, it suddenly become this... Um, uh, network, right? So it's kind of pushed us, it's pushed us really hard, uh, you know, a lot of long nights, but it's also kind of proven that if you take this, again, data being democratized and completely transparent, uh, in fact, the best uh, thing that I heard was from the CEO of Islamic Development Bank. He said, the number one reason why they're working with us is the transparency. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that the money that they're deploying in these member countries is completely transparent, traceable, 
and that the people who actually need the rice and the grain and the gloves get it. And for me, that's the key. And that's huge. That's that is, huge because they couldn't see it before. No one could see it before. They just kind of knew it or maybe it's getting there or based on what I can see, it looks like it's, you know, reaching who it needs to reach or that type of thing. And plus, you know, from a long term, that's the other part that I didn't answer. What does that, what does that mean for us long term, right? In fact, one of the things that means for us long term that, you know, as the COVID pandemic, I know it's here to stay for a while, but as it kind of starts tapering down, we've created a foundation of economic resilience, right? Because going back to that mother with the economic passport, now these same, same communities who are now using our platform have the history. So we've created, you know, and, and, and the Islamic Development Bank, they call it the, resp uh, the response phase, which is right now. And then it's basically restore and then restart. And we kind of mirror that because in a way, we're kind of laying the foundation that at the end of the day, we cannot abandon these communities after COVID. You know, we got to continue to build that economic resilience. So that's kind of where BankQ is headed. Well, I think the you know, network- There are dairy farmers there, there are recyclers there, and I want to work with all of them. Well, I think what you highlighted too is the value of the network too. You're bringing parties together by nature of each other, seeing that data and that information, you're also able to acknowledge where partnerships can form or where people can get access to supplies that they otherwise didn't know existed, yet there was a need. So you're able to broker kind of connecting those relationships and those transactions together. And that's also the beauty of having the data and the information is that you can see how that supply chain can work more fluidly, even across different products or across different needs in different countries, which it's, is phenomenal. And you know, it's an ecosystem. It's an eco, you know, for me, you know, and one of the things I, you know, tell our team, I said, look, we want to be invisible, right? I never want the mother to know about BenQ. She doesn't. In fact, you know, that's how BenQ works, right? It's an SMS message. I've never had to train a farmer. I've never had to train a recycler, right? Because we're not dumping new technology. It's an SMS message, right? But I, we want to make sure that that mother can say, I exist, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the piece. It's kind of like, you know, the Me Too movement for uh, people in poverty. Because otherwise, you know, if a war breaks in Congo and you're forced to move to a refugee camp in Rwanda, I can bet you money right now that your entire life will restart, mm -hmm. right? That's the reality. Yep, Whereas now, if you are, have this economic passport on the BenQ platform, you don't need to know it's BenQ. You can say, hey, look me up. And that's well, the key difference. And what you're describing too is when somebody's life is disrupted by a social event, a health event, anything, what's still consistent or constant is this moves with them, regardless of where Bingo. they go versus what you're describing, especially when you're a refugee. I know for my husband, you know, he came here to the U.S. when he was five years old, 19. 75 and anything you had in another country right you lost so now yes. you had to start over and start that whole process and if you were especially of an age where you couldn't necessarily retool yourself right then you, you were go. at a social disadvantage because you just didn't have age on your side so to speak absolutely what you're describing is this person or any individual can I'm not advocating for disruption here. I want to be clear about that. But at least like there's a, you're enabling that sustainability to occur across border regardless of what happened. 
things. And that provides people with a leg up, so to speak, if they had to start over again. Right. And even if you didn't, weren't disrupted, like, you know, so I was working in Guatemala with Nestle, you know, they're a client of ours for coffee. And, you know, coffee is an interesting crop, right? It's not like it grows every day, right? And one of the things that we're doing is to now enable this agronomy, right? So if you were going, growing coffee and you're selling coffee, but if you're going to grow carrots and peas, you know, the coffee company is not going to buy the carrots and peas, right? But if you can now have that same record capture the carrots and peas you're going to sell to somebody else, you have this 360 degree view at your level, right? Because one of the biggest problems that I've seen, and this is, again, you know, you can feel free to edit me out on this one, but we tend to parse people in poverty, their, their data into silos to benefit mm-hmm. us. And we but shouldn't no be doing time, that. Exactly, right? It's, it's like me telling you, uh, you know, go to co- a coffee shop, Tracy, and, you know, but bring your own cup, walk a mile, you know, get some beans and then walk another mile, heat some water, and then I'll put it together. I don't do that to you, right? Right. So why do we do that to poor people? We shouldn't be doing it. No, and the homeless. And we're choosing I mean, what know. we share. Put it that yeah. way too. Like exactly. Homeless eat. people in the United States, they're walking, and veterans, right, who are homeless, they're walking with vanilla folders from three different agencies. I think that's unfair. Well, it's an additional burden, like you mentioned, with the woman who lost the receipt, right? Where it disintegrated. Like, that, Absolutely. Like, all the work and effort that went into that work, right, only to be represented by a receipt that disintegrated. Like, you just lost your entire livelihood, literally your livelihood, because of that one receipt. Exactly. In fact, if I, you know, I always use this uh, uh, kind of a, you know, funny example, but if I told you, Tracy, you know, stop this call, walk across the street to a bank, right? And you cannot tell them anything. You cannot tell them what you do. You cannot tell them your work history. You cannot tell them your education, right? Or go to a car dealership and just tell them, I'm Tracy and I'm looking for a car loan, but you cannot prove anything. What do you think your experience will be? Oh, they're going to tell you to turn back around and go home. But you just walked all that distance and made that effort. And for what, right? Exactly. Exactly. And you and I have the resources to put together, you know, our FICO score and whatever, right? And get a good deal. But that recycler who is now on the streets of Bogota does not have that opportunity. That mother, you know, on the streets of Ghana does not have the opportunity to say, hey, I've been selling 40 kilos of good coffee that shows it's all the way to a Starbucks latte for eight bucks in New York. And why not, right? She should have the same right. I mean, I look, I look, I love fair trade and rainforest and everything. But at the end of the day, if we are not able to create that equality for the mother, then my fair trade is not fair trade. No, it's not fair trade. But you're also, we're also not solving the root cause of the problems, right? And we're not helping individuals to escape poverty either. We're just right. having people cycle back in and out of poverty when we should permit, permanently fix it. And I think that's really critical because at some point there are only so many resources on the face of this earth and you're not going to be able to continue to just cycle through it. So, exactly. and that's also a separate internet. conversation. <laughs> oh, no. Well, internet, you look at internet, right? You know, Facebook, WhatsApp, internet came to the poorest parts of the world, right? So the poorest people in the world have Facebook, but internet didn't pull people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great to have you, Ashish. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I, really God bless you for the Helping to educate us also as to what's going on in the world, because I think oftentimes, especially in COVID, because a lot of us are home, 
we also aren't necessarily learning about what's going on and innovation and what we can be doing to help one another. So I really appreciate you joining us and sharing a thank you. Oh, I appreciate what you do, right? We, as I said, we need everybody. We're all in this together, right? It's not, you know, I, you know, it's like flying a plane, right? If everybody was a pilot, we would never have, it would never take off, right? So it's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or too many pilots in the cockpit. It's, it's just, you know, we need all parts. So I so appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.